The following podcast is a discussion between two experts in their fields of beauty and not meant to be taken as medical advice. Be sure to consult with your doctor if you have any medical inquiries. Hi, this is Dr. Neil Shaw, and you're listening to Masters of Beauty. So this podcast is really interesting. Uh, I have the pleasure of talking with uh, Dr. Benjamin Paul. Dr. Paul is one of the world's leading experts in hair transplantation. He's essentially the go-to guy in New York City and one of the go-to guys in the world. Uh, He's doing some really cutting-edge stuff here, and I don't mean to put a pun on there, but just excellent surgeon, facial plastic surgeon who um, has a focus on hair. He does about 200 hair transplants a year and member of the International Society of Hair Restoration. So uh, I think you're going to enjoy this podcast. We talk about some things technical, talk about FUTs, FUEs, what works, what we both do, and uh, what's coming out. So uh, hopefully this is a fun podcast for you guys to digest. So this is Dr. Benjamin Paul, and I think it's my unbiased opinion that you are the go-to person for all things hair in New York. Also an amazing facial plastic surgeon, but um, pretty well regarded as the person to go to um, in New York City, um, East Coast, I guess anywhere, uh, for hair. Um, and uh, you're double board certified facial plastic surgery, member of the International Society of Hair Restoration Surgeries. Um, and you do about 200 hair transplants a year. And um, always um, seems like you're doing some cutting edge stuff over there uh, in New York City. Thank you for having me. And absolutely a pleasure. It's always a, you know, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to share ideas and talk about hair and what's on, you know, what we think to bring our patients the best results. Awesome. Uh, so, Ben, let's just get started. What made you get interested in hair transplant surgery and hair in general? Did you have like a personal moment during this? Yeah, I had a few things that have happened over my life that sort of came together to make me more interested in hair than probably the average person. The the first was that uh, um, my parents are both doctors. My dad is an eye doctor and my mom is a dentist. And I remember sitting at the dining room table as a kid uh, eating dinner and asking my mom, like, if you're going to create two front teeth, like, do you make them identical or are there slight variations? And we talked about veneers at length and how important design and artistry was, not just the materials when it came to designing teeth. And so I kind of understood this concept of natural beauty through these discussions at a really young age. And then when I was in um, college, uh, one of my friends had hair loss and I went to the doctor with, with my friend and it was really illuminating how, how just critically valuable to one's identity um, hair is. It, it frames the face. You look in the mirror, you see yourself. And then um, as my ENT and facial plastics progression happened, I got really interested in if you facelift, perfect, nose, perfect, face is beautiful, but the frame is off for some reason because the hair isn't doing what it's supposed to do. Um, I was really interested in what what options are there for restoration. And when I looked at the results that what people were doing on online and, and in the community, I was a little concerned by the sort of the missing artistry that I thought was available. And I think that both of us had the advantage of being facial plastic surgeons and looking at the face through the eyes, not just of a surgeon, but somebody with an aesthetic training in surgery. Um, and, and I really feel like 
when I'm working with each patient, I'm trying to highlight their natural beauty and bring out the features of their face and of their hair that, uh, that they identify with. Um, let's talk about the facial plastic surgeon background for hair transplants because, um, yeah, great, great story, Ben. Um, and I, I think that's probably understated because there's a lot of different types of doctors who do hair transplant surgeries. And um, I, I want to ask you a question. Um, we're going to let the audience know a little bit about FUT and FUE. FUT, for those who don't know, is strip surgery. It's gotten a little bit of a bad rap over the last um, probably even 10, 15 years. Um, do you think that's because less qualified people are doing this and leaving unsightly scars? Do you think there's a place for FUT versus FUE? What are your thoughts on that? I, I completely think that FUT is considered, in my eyes, the gold standard of hair transplant. The quality of the grafts that you can uh, extract are unparalleled. And the incision line, when closed by a surgeon, is different than when it's closed by somebody who hasn't learned every layer of the scalp and learned how to put deep stitches in and really get meticulous, gorgeous closure. And even beyond that, not just a surgeon, a, a plastic surgeon and not just a plastic surgeon, a facial plastic surgeon, someone who specializes in that. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. And, and I can tell you, you know, I, I went to a whole bunch of different offices when I was in training trying to learn hair. Um, and I was really shocked by how few of the surgeons were putting stitches in the deeper layers to act as an internal scaffold. And in every single case, I'm putting in stitches that last for four to six months, PDS stitches, to help support that closure so it doesn't widen. Um, yeah, I, I think um, we're, we're going to talk about some of the nuances of FUT versus FUT because I think you're seeing a little bit of resurgence in FUT. Um, let's let the audience know, uh, aside from theoretically better hair graft quality, um, what are some other advantages you see in FUT versus FUE? So in FUT, just for the audience, FUT is also the strip method, FU, which means that an ellipse is being removed from the back of the head of skin that contains hair that's going to grow for life, and then it's sewn closed, uh, such that it's like closing a sliding door. You're not left with a big gap in the back of the head. It should be a line that looks like a pencil has drawn a little line on the back of the head. And with any length of hair, you should get really relatively good coverage. FUE is a procedure where individual hairs are extracted with a micro drill, and it is something that in theory should be great, but it, it plays out in some hair types better than in others. Um, if you're looking at um, one of the differences, so we'll, we'll talk kind of back and forth between the two of us, um, FUT versus FUE. I, I think one benefit of FUT is you can get more hairs. If someone says, what's my maximum load? I can harvest from the back of my head. Um, with FUE, what's your number? You can see if you're just doing purely FUE in a lifetime of someone, what's the most you can get in someone? It's really case by case. And the absolute ideal candidate over a lifetime, maybe 3,000 grafts. Yeah, I think three. Some, some cases a little bit more, but around three. How about FUT? What would you say? I think in FUT, you could probably, if you're going to do two, two, three FUTs, you could go four or 5,000. Yeah, and, and, I, but, 
And so, and you can do both. So, so I think it's, you're really losing a valuable arsenal in your weapon if you're not offering patients FGT. And as a patient, if you're worried about this scar, one way to kind of eliminate that is say, hey, let's just go to someone who's a little bit more qualified so I can at least eliminate how my scar is, is going to look. Um, okay, cool. Um, so uh, aside from that, um, what about the visibility? Because I think people sometimes assume that FUE is invisible. I love FUE, by the way. I'm not trying to bash FUE, but it's, it's good to know the, the pros and cons. It's pretty hard in someone with a, like, higher than a two guard to see how, where their scar's at with um, FUT, in my opinion, even if they've had two or three. Um, FUE, sometimes you can get some pretty barren scalps in the back if they've been overmined. So I, I think it's one of those things that... Uh, it's not a, such a home run of FUE versus FUT for SCAR. My deciding factor, and tell me if you agree, is what hairstyle do they wear? If they're less than a two guard or one guard, um, I'm probably going to go um, with FUE. And if they're able to wear their hair longer, and you'll know by the age 50, like you're not going to shave your head. If you haven't shaved your head your whole life by 50, 40, you're probably not going to go with the uh, the Bruce Willis look. And um, then you're probably a good candidate for FUT, FUE, or both. And to me, I think that certain hair types um, very curly hair, I get a much better result with FUT. And I'll tell the patients that up front. Um, and I think for, for most women, I get a much better result with FUT because the hair is so delicate. Also, the safe donor zone in a woman is much smaller, so I can get all those hairs out uh, in a way that's very meaningful. I think the other interesting thing with FUT is... Um... I think your down your downtime is could be potentially left less because in FUT you only have to shave that little area. And do you leave the hair long, shave their head, or depend on what you I always leave the recipient hair long. I yeah, never cut it. Yeah, me too, because I, I, I like to see where the hair's going. I like to see all the hairs through there. It's nice to see the pattern of the hair. Plus, if someone I had my hair transplanted, if someone was to shave shave your head and do this, I would flip out. And I think most of my patients would too. Yeah. My goal is not just to do a beautiful operation, but to have a rapid recovery. And if you can keep the hair in the recipient zone long, that hair can be used to hide the, the early work. And that's a much faster re-entry back to work and back into life. Um, uh, okay. So that's uh, FUT and FUE. Um, uh, kind of another thing we're going to kind of go off topic over here. Um, so you're choosing between a plastic surgeon uh, versus, um, you know, maybe someone who has, you know, like an ER physician or something like that. Do you notice a difference between, um, in, in your area, we don't have to mention names, chains, like hair, like the big hair providers, uh, the ones who advertise a lot. What's the difference if you're a hair customer coming in to say, or oh, I'm going to go to someone who's just super well qualified like yourself, who yeah. has all this training. What's the difference? What, what, what kind of difference are they going to see in results? God, I think every single step is going to be different. I think you interface with the practice, you're going to meet me. I'm going to sit down and talk to you about what your goals are. In a big chain, you're going to meet a practice consultant. You barely get to interface with the doctor. I think when it comes to design and artistry, you're giving, you're giving us as surgeons paint and canvas and asking for us to do something beautiful with it and to go and just have a you know, sort of mill type experience, you're probably not going to get as beautiful uh, or artistic uh, result because 
as you were saying, I like to look at the pattern, the design, the angle of exit of the hair, how the hair likes to flop and, and match that. And, um, and then I think the training as a facial plastic surgeon is critical for design purposes. Um, and then I think that the accessibility to the practice is different when you're in a big practice for sort of a boutique practice. Yeah, and, and all the things you illuminated on, as well as quality control. You know, I, I think if you're you're there and you're intimately involved with, you know, many of the steps here, the design, you know, the site making, um, you know, the harvesting, you're going to get a much different experience than, um, you know, we, we all hear stories of what happens at these different places where you know, people with um, without even a high school education are injecting local anesthesia. They're um, they're making sites. Um, they're, they're doing a lot of this procedure and when patients ask why things didn't turn out the way they wanted to, well, things can happen with multiple reasons, but you're cutting out a lot of those variabilities if you're going to someone who's, um, whose heart and soul and practices that and using science versus someone who's trying to advertise. Listen, I, I, I totally agree. And I think that no doctor I've seen does a hair transplant, a, a normal size hair transplant all by themselves, maybe a tiny one, but not a big one. We all need help. This is a much more collaborative effort than some other procedures in plastic surgery. And so you want to go to a place that works with a team that they're really familiar with, with a lot of experience at every level. And um, and I think that that's just not something you can be as certain about at a bigger place because there's a lot of rotating people. As, at a smaller place with really good results and consistency, you're going to see a team that's a well-oiled ship that's well optimized. For sure, for sure. Um, talking about hair in general. So if you someone came into your office and said, I want to know, Dr. Paul, what works as far, aside from hair transplant, uh, they're already doing that, but what works to maintain my hair? What's out there? So what have you seen that works um, that's on your go-to list? So for men, it's all about DHT control. So finasteride is hugely valuable. It has horrible press but there are ways to make it safer in terms of taking a lower dose and trying to balance it with certain things that help libido at the same time. Um, I found that um, stress has been incredibly damaging for my patient's hair during COVID. I'm sure you're seeing the same thing. Um, and there's a lot of talk about um, ashwagandha and curcumin as stress adaptogens. And it's really easy to supplement it. And it turns out when you're lowering somebody's stress, not only is their hair better, but their libido is better. So that's been kind of exciting. It's something that I didn't really think about before COVID, but something I've learned a lot about in the last year. Is there a brand you um, like for that? For that? That's a great question. I don't have a particular brand yet, but I'm, I'm sort of playing around with the different ones, but we should definitely revisit that in about six months. I'll give you a more solid answer. Okay. Um, but I, I think, and I think the dose is somewhere between 250 and 500 milligrams a day. And I'm uh, working with different patients on dose modulation, but there are studies that it will drop your cortisol 10 to 30% per day. Like oh, that's interesting. each day, like that's an awesome reduction. Cause like when you're less stressed, everything is better. For sure. And I have yet to meet someone who's not having some level of stress, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. Even my kids who are like, you know, um, you know, 12, you know, 14, I mean, that range, they're, um, you know, still stressed out. I mean, we all have some level of stress. And if you can reduce that, um, it, it's going to manifest in your hair. Totally. And then um, topical minoxidil, Rogaine is FDA approved. It's time tested. 
uh, it works. And then um, I think that there's a bunch of hair oils that patients individually like that I think may have benefit. Um, what about you? What are, what are your go-tos? Um, yeah, so I, I like uh, some variant of, of finasteride. And um, I, I love patients who you can tolerate that. I take it actually every day. Um, actually, I take Proscar 5 milligrams. I chop it up into some variation between uh, 0.5 milligrams to you know 0.8 milligrams, so kind of a microdose. It's in your mm-hmm. bloodstream for about 24 hours. So I know some people like to go every other with a full dose, but I like having it in my bloodstream at all times because DHT is the main culprit. Um, for uh, the stress, I like Nutrafol. You know, I think it's it's a little bit um, um, a little pricey for what it is, but I, I kind of take um, one to three tablets a day on that. It's very yeah. well sourced. Um, it has salt palmetto, which affects DHT in a different mechanism. Uh, so I think yeah. it's... Um, uh, and I, it I has Africanda in it also. It exactly. And and I think you have to be very careful to the to the viewers who are on full-dose finasteride to add full-dose Nutrafol, because you're going to lower your DHT a fair amount between the salt palmetto that's in the Nutrafol. So I think what you're doing where you're sort of microdosing both of them is super smart. Um, and then um, libido, we, we can touch on that. What do you have your patients do for libido to counteract that? Try to lower the dose, take some holidays, take breaks, um, and then don't be a hero. You know, you, at some point, you, you don't want to lose your libido for your hair. And, and any supplements you have them take or no? Usually I'll work with a urologist if it gets really bad, but I, I haven't been doing like Cialis or stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Me neither. Once it gets, um, and again, I'm usually recommending microdoses, so it's usually not going to that spot. Again, I agree with you. I think the media overstates this a little bit. It's a real problem for some men. However, um, I think with microdosing, I find that almost all men can tolerate a microdose. Um, a full dose, there's definitely men who can't tolerate that. But um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's it's also one of these things where I've actually used Nutrafol as a bridge to starting finasteride because it kind of lowers the DHT through the soft palmetto, and then you transition, you start to introduce little bits. And the brain, because a lot of the issues are, are, I think, psychological more than they are physiological, which means you're kind of psyching yourself out as opposed to actually not able to perform. And so if you, if you slowly sort of titrate up the finasteride, the, the brain can figure out the new level but the hair never does. The hair always appreciates the lower DHT. I, I think the other benefit of finasteride, which is understated, is if you're going to be a straight consumer of mid-40s and on, is this reduction of your prostate size. Because almost all men, that's going to be an issue for all of us. If you've yeah. ever had an older man in your house, um, it's not some random guy in my house. He's like a father-in-law or something like that. Um, three in the morning, you hear that sound, that toilet flushing. You know what's happening. Uh, they've got a giant prostate. And we're all heading there. So you're getting that double-edged uh, benefit with it. So I think it's uh, something um, you're prophylactically treating on. Right. And and for the listeners who haven't spent their days thinking about finasteride every day, this pill came out in 1992 at five milligrams. So that means every week people took 35 milligrams every week. And then they showed in a double-blind study that one milligram and five milligram had the same outcome for hair after one year. And so instead of having... 30 to 50% side effects, there was like 1 to 3% side effects, and it's just people had been overdosing. And so 
I think what we're talking about is you can take even less than one milligram a day, because if seven milligrams a week and 35 milligrams a week have the same result in hair, you can take a lot less than seven probably and still see the improvement. For sure. Um, I'm going to say something a little controversial. Minoxidil. I don't know if it's as powerful as people think, because I haven't yet seen, you know, I've seen women grow hair on their face afterward. Yeah. Uh, it's an unwanted side effect. I've seen some men grow hair with beards, but I haven't seen like, you know, a remarkable, maybe you have, uh, but I haven't seen like a remarkable turnaround with just minoxidil. Have you? Uh, no, not with minoxidil alone. I've seen it sort of like in combination with things. Um, I actually sometimes think minoxidil and PRP together work pretty well. Um, and I think that minoxidil, uh, you know, there's studies showing it's better on the back half than potentially in the front. But if somebody has miniaturization and they they want to try to get the hair thicker, it's it's a it's a good place to start because the side effect profile is so minimal. What do you take, Ben? For my own hair? Uh-huh. I'm finasteride four days a week. Four days a week, though. Yeah. Every um, every other day dosing. Um yeah. uh, and then how important is is it for men who come in? Um, you know, you have that twenty four year old, twenty five year old patient. I get a lot of these patients that come in and say they want to go on their temple. How important is it for them to be on prophylactic treatment, um, maintenance treatment, and when do you start them on finasteride? So I think that everybody has their moment when they're like, oh my God, or not every, like not everybody, but people who are going to experience hair loss have this moment where they're like, I'm really starting to see hair loss and it's really bothering me. That's the moment to start. In terms of true prophylaxis, um, I'm cautious with the with the kids in their sort of young 20s because the the sexual maturity may not be fully there, um, and so it's case by case. But uh, if you're going to lower somebody's temples, you're taking hair that's going to be permanent, growing for life, and putting it in a place where they may never have grown hair. Then they could go fully bald and only grow hair in this front spot, and that could look off. So I actually don't do that maneuver very often at all. Um, and if I was going to do it, it would have to be on somebody who's like absolutely stable with their hair. And I would prefer them to be on finasteride. Um, what's the trickiest area for you to, to, to fill with, uh, with a hair transplant? Talking about that. Do you think it's yeah. the front or the crown and why? A hundred percent. I think the vertex is trickier than the front because I do the front every day. And I think that the blood supply to the vertex is just not as strong. It's a tight area on people's scalp. And I think actually in the recovery of vertex transplants, that's when minoxidil has shown or shined through for me because I think it's improving blood flow to the grafts. It's a smooth muscle relaxer. That's how it's originally working. And it definitely improves blood flow around the scalp. And so I've used it for that and seen results with it. When do you have them start minoxidil after a hair transplant? How soon after? So if they've never been on it, I wait six weeks because I just want the grafts to settle in, not be disturbed by any chemicals. If they've been on it, I want to get them back on as soon as possible. So probably two weeks and we'll just take the risk. What about you? Um, yeah, about two weeks. I don't like anything between the grafts. Um, in, our, in our paperwork, we say that patients can wash their hair one week after surgery, uh, hair transplant. When do you feel safe with them washing their hair, full-on shower, scrubbing? I think two weeks is fine. Two, two. I so I, I do like a cut pour thing for the first 10 days, and then I see them at day 10, and I guide them from there. And usually I try to get a normal shower in for patients 
like spray the whole thing at 14 days. Yeah, that's that's where I start to feel more comfortable with working out and just kind of like, you know, at that point, they're either butted or they're not. How soon afterwards are you seeing hairs grow for your patients? And when should someone be worried with their hair? So um, if someone doesn't see hair growth at three months, six months, when is your your part where they should be worried? So I think that that 10 day, that that visit in the first week to two is crucial because what I'm looking for is to see the follicle, the hair growing. And that gives me reassurance that things are sort of on track. At three months, I tell patients there should be no result. Like you should basically wonder why we did this. And really at four months, kind of the same. At five, six months, you're going to say, this worked. And then in the back of your mind, you're going to say, I wish there was more. And that's human psychology. And that's okay to think that way. But that's the normal path. And then over seven, eight months, you should be like really starting to get a sense that you have a result. And then the thing is, though, at eight months, even though you're sure it's working, you're not seeing the final result because there's a maturation of the hair being made um, that occurs in the second half. So between months nine and 18. In terms of when to worry, I try to tell patients not to worry. We're here for you. We're gonna we're gonna make it right in whatever way we need to. And um, if you're not seeing any any growth at the seven month mark, that would be questionable. There are times where patients grow for five months and then it sheds and they have late telogen, and that's not in the textbooks, but I've definitely seen it. And it just, like disappears at five, six, seven, eight months, and it shows up at nine months. So. You have to kind of look at the whole trend of what's been going on. And um, I don't know. It's, it's a long process. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's always about patience and hand-holding. I think um, we want instant results. And I think uh, the message to a lot of our patients is if you want to see something, you should be doing this sooner rather than later because you're not going to see a result. And most of our patients, it's going to be at least, um, you know, it's a year to 14 months before you start getting close to that, you know, can be really yeah. going on here. Um, a lot of our patients, um, uh, when they do hair, um, a certain number of them want to do more hair, or they say, "I'm going to put more in here after I've done one session." How many of your patients do more hair, um, and when is it safe to do another hair transplant? I like patients to wait at least eight or nine months, ideally one year. The longer they wait, I'm happy, but I don't want to rush it because I want to see what grows. I don't want to disturb the growth of a of a follicle that's hiding under the skin uh, before it's come out. What about for you? I like to wait at least a year because yeah. again, I don't want to disrupt uh, these roots that have been planted, these tulip bulbs that are coming out. And um, uh, yeah, um, how yeah, about- You don't go planting in February. And then in terms of if they just keep wanting more and more, I mean, there's a theoretical limit for everybody because you only have every hair that's taken out during a hair transplant isn't going to grow back. So at the end of a hair transplant, patients don't have more hair, they have it distributed better. And so we've got to talk about where you are now, what are the aesthetic goals, and what does the future hold, and then work together to find what the best answer is. Um, sometimes patients will ask about um, densely packing the hair. Um, they'll say, can you densely pack my hair? I'm going to have as many hairs as you can per um, square stem. What are some of the drawbacks and some of the pros of doing that? And do you think you'll get every one of those hairs growing if you put them so close together, or do you think that you're going to go... So I think that there are clearly aesthetic improvements if you can get a density where you don't see as much scalp. But there's no way that a hair transplant can be packed as dense as natural childhood hair, like a teenage hair is going to grow because it, it, each one of these 
follicles, these seeds, has a volume, and the scalp has to accept that volume. If you overly dense pack, you're going to get a lot of scar tissue, which is going to make future transplants challenging, and you can disrupt blood supply and get a horrible complication called necrosis, which I've happily never seen in real life in my own hands. I saw it through an email from a patient who went abroad to Turkey and wanted help, and I asked the patient to see to speak with their surgeon about it because I don't know what happened during their operation. Yeah, I, I think the same thing with uh, with densely packing. It's one of those things that um, what patients don't realize. The name of the procedure is hair transplantation. What you're literally doing is taking a hair organ and transplanting to another area. So to give each hair a proper opportunity to survive, you have to have enough blood supply. And I don't think you can properly nourish, um, you know, uh, 50 grafts per square cm. It's just not possible. Um, uh, so that's why I think in some cases, it's better to give them a result. And then if you have to, you can always add more hairs later, um, um, you know, depending on how, how densely they want their hair packed. Um, and depending on their other hair loss. Uh, so that's that's kind of one of those things we talk to our patients uh, in advance. I, I completely agree. And I, I think that um, I tell each patient, like, I'm not trying to make it look like you didn't have hair loss. I'm just helping you look your best now and age in a way that looks sort of appropriate and natural appearing. And so it's a, it's a mindset shift. And once you're dealing with hair loss, it's no longer about perfect. It's about Beautiful camouflage. What are your thoughts on female hair transplants? You know, that, that's a trickier question because there's so many causes of hair loss. And just like men, it's an easier solution. It's probably an 85, 90% DHT and maybe the other 10% stress and, and other things. For women, yeah. it's a much complex uh, milieu of things that can cause it. Um, I definitely think there's a hormonal component, but then there's also a stress component. Uh, but um, you know, if it's that classic female hair loss Christmas tree pattern you're seeing through the front, um, and um, I think it's definitely a, a valuable tool. I think forehead reduction, I think, is another valuable tool. I, I like to put in my practice and uh, potentially do hair transplant afterwards. And then I think they respond um, the best to therapy. PRP, exosomes, um, yeah. you know, Nutrafol they respond much better than men. Uh, women can actually grow their hair back with that. I think men can maintain maybe right. some hair growth. Women, you can see miracles. I was reading an interesting study, which I think explains what, you're, what we're both seeing, which said that if you biopsy a man and look under a microscope at the hair follicle, you're going to see miniaturization, small follicles, but you're not going to see much inflammation. Almost every woman with androgenic alopecia, female pattern hair loss, has this microfolliculitis and PRP is like incredible anti-inflammation, which is why in women probably there there's a target, whereas in men there's less of a target. And then um, I, th I, I agree. I think like the artistry of hairline lowering or hairline definition, even in the temple area on women, is like strikingly beautiful and so helpful with all different varieties of hair, from gray hair to dark hair to blonde hair. Um, Curly, it, it does really well. And, and I think that's one of the advantages, again, of being a facial plastic surgeon versus just a, you know, a regular surgeon is we have the option where we can we can lift brows up, we can lower foreheads, we can add yeah. hair. Just have more tools at our disposal where um, someone else can maybe do a hair transplant on someone who's not going to be able to get the result they want without a hairline lowering procedure. So right. I think it's a definitely a, um, it's good to have more tools in our, in our belt than, you know, perhaps some other 
um, surgeons. Um, PRP, how many sessions do, do your patients need um, typically to see a result? So usually it's, it's two, the, the minimum. There's like 30 plus studies that have been written about PRP for hair and two of them say that PRP doesn't work. And the similarity in these two studies that don't show effect are that they looked within three months and they only did PRP once. So if you're thinking about doing PRP, this is a journey. We gotta get enough PRP in you to see the improvement and hair loss and hair growth. These are slow phenomena for most. And so usually I'll do a treatment and then about two months later, a second one and potentially two months later, a third one and look at six months. I'm yep. not sure what your timeline is. Uh, we like a minimum of three. And, um, you know, I think um, we notice women see some results usually with three and men, I think, need more, um, yeah. you know, four or five. Um, what about some of the variants of PRP? Do you like PRFM, Cellfill? Yes. No, 100% love PRFM. I think Cellfill is a really consistent uh, way to make the PRFM, although there's a, there's a Cosmo France company makes one also, which is fine. But I think that the linking the growth factors to fibrin, this platelet-rich fibrin matrix, allows the growth factors to slowly bathe the hair follicles over long periods of time, which helps with growth. Now, here's a controversial element, and me and my wife disagree about this one, so we'll get your thoughts as maybe the... Yeah. Uh, when can you wash your hair after PRP? Um, I'm in the uh, 72 hours, you know, don't want to manipulate it because PRP theoretically is not there as long as you want, even the PRFM. She's in, the you can wash your hair right away. So the sites of the needle, according to what I've read, are closed at four hours. So I tell all the patients, like, you're going to have a little dried red blood and dried yellow PRP on your scalp after the procedure. And for the listeners, the procedure is 25 minutes. I mean, it's, it's an office procedure. You're back to work. And so I just like them to rinse with some water. And then the next morning, you can shampoo, condition, and go about life as normal. So you're, she wins in your camp. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, but I, I, I think if your wife's happy, we're all happy, right? There we go. Well, she, in, in fairness, she does a lot of the uh, regenerative stuff. Um, have you tried um, any of the other injectables for the hair, including exosomes? Um, uh, I haven't tried stuff? exosomes. I was reading a whole bunch of horror stories about it from Nebraska, and the FDA got involved. And I'm sure that's not every case, but I'm decided I'm going to be a slow adopter on exosomes. I at first was super excited about them, but then the company told me all the things they do for every part of the body perfectly. And I thought, uh oh, because when something promises to do everything perfectly, it makes me scared. Yeah, um, we, we do use exosomes in the office um, and um, I actually I like them, but they're not as powerful as advertised. And I think in some of the um, descriptions, you see men who have... Uh, uh, you know, Norwood sevens and they're coming back with uh, hair that looks like Fabio in his prime. And I'm like, that's not going to happen with one treatment of this. Yeah. And, it, and it's like at two weeks, they've grown hair that would take two months to grow in light. Like something is, was just so off in the photos and they're showing me the before and afters. So it made me a little bit like hesitant to jump on board so soon. Uh, but I, I do, um, I do like where the science is going in that. And I do like the fact that um, it's, stimulating the, the dermal you know, the, the brain center of the, of the hair to really try to not die uh, because essentially hair is a 
non-essential organ. And, uh, you know, when it's under stress, it's going to say you're not important under all those things. So I, I do like the fact that it's, it's putting some attention to the dermal patella. And at least yeah. it has care to um, not die. Have you done any Botox at the hairline for uh, smooth muscle relaxation for hair growth? Ah, I have not. Have you? I've done it. It's helpful, I think. Really? How did yeah. you go uh, a little more dilute by the hairline or just kind of? Yeah. Smooth? Yeah. Huh. I'm going to put that on my list. Actually, I'll try it on myself because, again, it's always a, a work in progress trying to get as much hair as we can. Um, How do you? Have you done the exosomes on yourself? Oh, uh, yeah. I've done PRP, exosomes, PRFM. And if I had an order of pain, I'd say PRP is the most painful. Um, yeah. PRFM is second. And exosomes is actually not painful as much. You know, and, and I'm, um, there's video of me. I scream with a really high pitched uh, voice with the uh, PRP, slightly less high with the PR, uh, PRFM, uh, which is the social, and then exosomes. I've oh, that's so funny. At my normal voice. That's it's good to it's good to try it. Did you ever try ACEL? Uh, I have not tried ACEL. We have not incorporated that. Have you? Uh, no. So I, I have seen firsthand horror stories from that one, where patients. So ACEL is this extracellular matrix made from uh, fetal pig bladder, um, like baby pig's bladder tissue, and theoretically it's supposed to act as a scaffold to help hold on to the PRP growth factors. But every once in a while, the body can figure out that pigs are not humans and there can be a horrible reaction to it so i was just wondering if you use that yeah i don't really love foreign substances especially from different animals just in general it's just like you know the original uh, collagen was from a cow and that didn't work well um, right. um they tried permacol which is from a pig that didn't work well and so um usually you know um, non-animal sourced products i think are better than than animal source when patients ask i just tell them that a cell is not kosher <laughs> there we go. Um, cool. Uh, so we talked a lot about a lot about hair um, and a uh, couple thoughts. Where do you think hair is going in the next, uh, you know, five, ten, five to 10 years is kind of a, a bow in. I think that there is an incredible lab at Columbia headed by this woman, Angela Cristiano, and she's made a lot of progress cloning mice hair. And um, I was listening to a talk by her at the uh, hair meeting a few months ago. And I would imagine in the next decade or so, they're going to figure out some way to make human hairs clone. I mean, I don't quote me on it in terms of like, I'm not sure exactly the exact timeline, but that's very exciting. Um, I think the more, um, the sooner to arrive excitement is in this anti-androgen topical called Winlevy. Um, also called clascosterone, which is like topical finasteride. I just don't think it works. It's too thick of a molecule to penetrate scalp. And, um, and so they, this group has created a really small anti-androgen molecule that theoretically can penetrate scalp. And there's some studies from Italy that are exciting. And it just was approved by the FDA for acne, um, I think in January. So that if it gets approved from the FDA topically for hair, and that means people didn't have to take oral finasteride or use it as an adjunct, that would be the first thing FDA approved like in 20, 30 years for hair. It's very exciting. Is that so? It's on the market now. It's it just arrived on the market for anti-acne. It's so it's W I N L E V I. I think. Is it expensive? If you, um... I, I can't. I cannot get my hands on it. It's unpurchasable from what I can tell because I want to start to compound it with a pharmacy and see what happens. Huh. Interesting. 
Wow, Win yeah. Levy, that's great. Great information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, super exciting because it really like the studies from Italy suggest it really does work. Yeah, the hair cloning. I, I think um, I've been excited about, for example, cartilage. Uh, you know, manufacturing a lab and other things. And ten years ago, they said you know they would have the cartilage ready. And um, I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to hold my breath for that one because I think there's definitely some hurdles with that. And I'm wondering the cost to clone hair, what that's going to be for the beginning. Um, probably going to be crazy. Astronomical. Yeah. I'm thinking um, six figure uh, or more. Yeah, I, I I could see it being something like that, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Well, amazing stuff. Um, always learn so much information when uh, when I talk to. Um, uh, great, great. Well, uh, uh, thanks for sharing all your knowledge with us, um, and thanks for doing such amazing work um, for all the patients out there. Thank you as well. All right. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Masters of Beauty. If you like this episode and don't want to miss out on the next, be sure to subscribe right here where you listen to your favorite podcast. And if you really want to help the show out, leave us a five-star review and a comment or possible topics that you would love to hear Dr. Shaw discuss. We love hearing from you. To find out the latest updates from Dr. Shaw and Shaw Aesthetics, you can follow us on Instagram at Shaw Aesthetics and on YouTube at youtube.com slash Shaw. You can find these links and any other links mentioned by Dr. Shaw and his guests during this episode in the show notes. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Masters of Beauty.